The word of God from Isaiah in 1 Timothy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Helen. Would you remain standing just a moment longer as we pray uh, and commend this time to the Lord? Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy of the littlest ones in our church family leading us into worship. And we pray that, indeed, by your Spirit, that these next few moments of considering your word would lead us into deeper worship. But Lord, our hearts are distractible, our hearts are resentful, our hearts um, are stubborn. And so we ask by your Spirit to illumine the Scriptures and soften our hearts, that we would know you and that we would love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I have never had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Denver Press. So it's the custom of DPC to preach sermons that what are traditionally called expository sermons. And that's where you like take a text, or if you're fancy, you call it a pericope, and you explain it in its context and you make some applications. And we definitely think that that's the best word to re- best way to regularly uh, feast and learn from God's word. Uh, but there are other ways to preach sermons. We're not elitists here. Um, for instance, in most sort of evangelical churches, they teach topical sermons. And that's where you kind of look at an idea and you scour the Bible to consider different reflections on that topic. Uh, for Advent, we're doing something close to that. Um, we're in the book of Isaiah in your Old Testament. And in Isaiah, there are these really ex- mysterious prophecies about the coming Messiah. And there are four names that are ascribed to this Messiah. And um, so far, we've looked at two of them. Last week, we looked at Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. And we're giving uh, attention to the third name. We're going to do that same exercise again today to the next name, which is Everlasting Father. And it's really important that we carefully examine these names because their meaning and implications are not immediately obvious for modern readers. A few of you have mentioned like how grateful you were for the clarification on the names. Like for instance, Wonderful Counselor has nothing to do with Jesus being a terrific life coach. 
Uh, it has implications and more something similar to a wartime advisor. Uh, and so we're going to go through this exercise again today because the name Everlasting Father is a difficult one, and it presents a kind of um, theological and intellectual problem for a few of us. Uh, one of the very core doctrines of the Christian faith is the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is so important that we get this right, because if you don't believe in the Trinity, whatever, whatever it is you think you believe, if you don't believe in the Trinity, it ceases to be Christian. Uh, I'm not going to oversimplify this complex doctrine, but it does speak to the threefold personhood and nature of God. You have God, who is God the Father, God, who is God the Son, and God, who is God the Holy Spirit. And it's really important that we never say that the Father is the Son, or that the Son is the Spirit, or that the Spirit is the Father. It's really important that you never say that there's just this one God who appears in three different forms, like water and ice and mist. Like, don't do that. It's important that you never say it's just like one Spirit who manifests himself sometimes in God the Father, sometimes in the Son, sometimes in the Spirit. Don't do that. All of those analogies will move you right into heresy. <laughs> You know, and it's interesting because the church has gone to great lengths to establish this great theological doctrine. In fact, it's so important that back in 325 AD, there was a whole church council about it. See, what had happened is there was this guy named Arius, and he began to advance this heresy that was actually getting a little bit of traction in the time. And it, and it was confusing the nature and the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And so this was a really big deal. So the very first council of Nicaea, 325, it was convened to kind of clean this up and to confirm, not to invent, to confirm what the church had always taught. Now, there were two other really famous people who were in attendance at the Council of Nicaea, and you might know their names. The first one is a guy named Athanasius, and Athanasius, um, he's known for his famous work on the Incarnation. Uh, Jason Farrar uh, a couple times has led a book study studying it. But there is this other guy who was in attendance, and his name was St. Nicholas. Yes. This is the St. Nicholas who got caught throwing gold coins through the windows uh, of, poor, of homes that were in, uh, living in poverty. Uh, this is the same guy from which our wonderful Christmas mythology comes when we get the figure Santa Claus. Jolly old St. Nick. That's him. Now, I'm not sure how true this next part of what I'm going to tell you is, but part of church lore says that when he was at the Council of Nicaea, he was so upset at Arius and what was being taught uh, that he gets up in the middle of the council, walks over the courts to him, to Arius, and punches him in the face. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Santa Claus is super hardcore about the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, we're serious about the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're, and we're careful, right, to teach it correctly. And so we have to ask, why is it that Messiah, Jesus, to whom these names belong, why is he called the everlasting Father? This seems to be confusing the doctrine of the Trinity, confusing the Son with the Father. Well, here's the answer in brief, and then I'm going to explain it later. The title Father is a colloquial name ascribed to the king of Israel. 
So everlasting father could be understood as everlasting king. And in Jesus, he will be known, as Paul says, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so two chapters earlier, Isaiah 9 and chapter 7, the Messiah is prophesied about, right? And it said that he would be born of a virgin. Then in our chapter, Messiah is given these very peculiar nicknames, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Today, we're exploring everlasting father. And then next week, we'll be looking at the Prince of Peace. But here's what I want you to know is that these names and everlasting father in specific, specifically for today, it's, I want these names to mean everything to you. I want them to mean everything to modern Denverites. And so we're going to take some time to explore this together, to get our hearts around this, these, this beautiful name. We're going to explore the meaning of everlasting father, which hints at three different things. First, it, it hints at Messiah's authority, then Messiah's disposition, and then Messiah's care. So authority, disposition, care. Let's begin with our first point, Messiah's authority. Well, every time you read the Bible, before you ask the question, what does this mean to me, you need to ask the question, what would the original audience have understood? What would they have heard when they heard the word everlasting father? Well, there's a lot of examples in the Old Testament, but as I alluded to earlier, kings were referred to as fathers. Let me just give you one uh, poignant example uh, you'll remember last year when we were studying through 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel has anointed David the king of Israel. The problem was is that there was a king already in Israel, and his name was Saul. So um, when Saul hears about this anointing, he got very jealous, rabidly so, and he wanted to kill David. So there's story after story after story of like Saul coming after David. But there's this one story, and, I, and Jason actually preached this text last year, uh, where uh, David has retreated to the caves. He's looking, uh, he's looking for refuge from Saul. Saul unwisely comes after him. And so now Saul and David, now it's really important for y'all to understand, Saul and David are not related at all. There is no biological connection between the two. But at one point in a battle between Saul and David, David gets close enough to Saul, without Saul knowing, where he could have killed him. But instead of killing him, what he does is he takes out his knife and he cuts out just a corner of Saul's robe. Now, and then later, and this is kind of like an awesome flex on David's part, but David holds up this piece of cloth in front of Saul's face, and he says these exact words. This is 1 Samuel 24. He says, see my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now you understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. So when David says to Saul, my father, he's acknowledging that Saul is still his king, even though that he's been anointed. David says he's not trying to overthrow the monarchy. And so this title of father is often used in places of authority. You'll still see this even today. So for instance, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they will call the Pope the Holy Father. 
And they're, they're saying that to someone who has no biological relationship, but they were speaking to his position. Or perhaps a little bit more recognizable to you, Protestants, uh, one of the greatest Marvel movies, um, Black Panther, uh, the, the, very, the queen of that, that nation, Wakanda, played by the amazing and stunning Angela Bassett. Her name is Ramonda. That's her name, but what she's most often referred to as is the queen mother. That's good. That's how this works. The king father, the, the king of Israel, that's how father works. So that baby that we meet in, in the gospel of Luke chapter two, that baby whose arrival made shepherds quake and wise men take a knee is the everlasting father, the king father, you see. So now that we've established that Jesus, the Messiah, is not simply like a priestly figure who's helping you with your guilt and your sin, but he is a king, I think we need to do a little bit of wrestling with this. If Jesus is the king, and Paul will call him the king of kings, it means then that he is in authority over you. And that he, as your king, can make demands of you. Now, it's easy to say, but the implication is like really, really hard. Listen, one time I went to one of my favorite restaurants. Food was good. The waitress was terrific. When it came time to pay the bill and leave the tip, I gave her a 25% tip because she made the experience a really nice one. Now, sometime later, I went back to that same restaurant, and they had put a new system in place the food was good. The waiter, in this case, was, was good as well. But when it came time to pay the bill, the tip was already included. And the bill was marked up 18%. Now listen, we weren't one of those parties of six or more. There's just three of us. And listen, I liked the guy, but it bothered me. Like, don't judge me. I know y'all are like this too. Like, <laughs> No one tells me how much to tip. And in fact, it restrained my generosity because of it. That tip is this unspoken authority over me. And here's the thing. We all have this anti-authority bent to us. We don't love the idea of someone ruling over us. That's not just teenagers. That's all of us. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. And even for people who purport to be Christian, to believe in Christ, this can play out in really subtle ways. Like we believe in Jesus, we will follow the everlasting Father until it contradicts us, right? Like when our dreams and our longings and our desires are at odds with his holy will, right? And that's when the rubber meets the road, we like the benefits of the king, but we're unsure if we want his rule. We're, and here's why. Because we're unsure if his rule is truly good. That's the crux of this. We are unsure if his rule is truly what's best. And so to help us with that, we need to consider not only the authority of the everlasting father, but we must also consider the king's disposition, both as king father, but also as a fatherly king. So Isaiah doesn't want us, want, 
to not, he's not only try, with that nickname trying to convey authority, but he's also trying to convey character. So this is our second point, Messiah's disposition. This point is not insignificant either. You have to remember how the original audience, remember, how the original audience would have heard this and would have heard these names. So in the times of Isaiah, as we talked about last week, Israel was not doing so hot. There was a lot of uncertainty. And the people needed to know that there was a king who would come, but a king who would not be like all the other kings. Remember that like well before uh, Isaiah's time, before there were kings at all, like in the time of the judges, things were really uneasy. And so Israel, they asked for a king. Like they wanted to be like all the other nations. Pretty please, God, give us a king. And God is like, now remember this. He's like, okay, but this is a double-edged sword. Human rulers are a hot mess and oppressive. Like you'll get what you you get what you're gonna ask for, but they will oppress you. And anticipating this, God makes this promise because He's kind. God says, and even still, there will always be a son of David on the throne whose rule will last forever. Now, for you biblical theologians, this is what we call the Davidic covenant. Now, this is a really big deal because Israel relates to their kings different than any other nation. For Israel, the king serves as a covenant representative on behalf of the people of God. And what this means is, and this is what you have to understand, the welfare of the people is tied to the obedience of the king. If the king obeys, things go well for Israel. And if he doesn't, then things go bad and dark quick. Well, at the time when Isaiah is writing chapter 9, where these names are given, there is a king on the throne, and his name is Ahaz. And if you do a quick research about Ahaz in the book of Kings, you get a short but shocking description of his rule. We learn that this guy goes into the temple. So the temple is the holy place of Israel where they worship and they make sacrifices to the Lord. And Ahaz uses this most holy and sacred space and he moves all of that stuff to the side, almost as if he's saying, we're introducing a new set of gods. A new set of gods have moved in and he puts up an altar to a foreign god in the temple of Israel. And then, wait for it, Ahaz performs human sacrifice with his own child. The king of Israel is despicable. It's dark. The king obeys, goes well, and if the king disobeys, it doesn't. You know, when I was little, I have memories of swimming at like the municipal pool with my older brothers and, you know, older brothers and younger brother. They, we'd rough house. And on several occasions, I could remember being under the water, my lungs starting to burn and needing to come up for air. And as I would move to the surface, my torturous brothers would put their hand on my head and keep me under the water just a little bit longer. I imagine that's what it felt like for Israel living under Ahaz's rule, burning, desperately needing to come up for air, and someone's keeping your, hand, your head underwater. 
into that context, Isaiah speaks of Messiah. He will be a fatherly king, a king whose rule brings life, whose rule is for your good, whose rule humanizes and draws out the glory of its subjects, puts air in your lungs. He is a father who envisions the potential of his children and works to bring out that glory. Imagine, do this intellectual exercise with me for just a second. Imagine we're in like this post-apocalyptic world in which like the United States has fallen and now the entire country is just reconstituted into like a bunch of kingdoms. And Denver is now a kingdom and you are the king or you are the queen. All right, think about this. So you're in charge. What's the first thing that you need to do? You got to establish some rules. So what are the rules of your kingdom? I mean, what are the terms that you establish for living in the kingdom of Denver? What would you do? What would you create? What would you prohibit? Whatever it is that you decide, all of those rules, those rules reflect your ideals and your longings for the king, for the kingdom and its subjects, right? right? Those rules or prohibitions are a product of your good longings for the kingdom. Can you see how that works? Now apply that to Jesus, the everlasting king, the fatherly king. His rules are not to hurt you. They're not to annoy you. His rules are acts of love. They represent ideals for you to draw out glory. See, let me just use like kind of a low-hanging fruit example. When God says, don't commit adultery, like God's not being a prude, right? He loves you and he loves your neighbor. He's not imposing some sort of puritanical moral vestiges from oppressive past, right? If you cheat on your spouse, it hurts them. But it hurts you too, right? You're dehumanized as well. Like everyone loses because your heart was not designed to work like that. And so it ruptures your soul. It deeply wounds your spouse. See, it's not so much that we break God's law. It's that God's law breaks us. Think of it like more like the law of gravity. You can try to transgress the law of gravity but you will get hurt. Like gravity will be fine, right? You'll get hurt. And so we teach about gravity for the sake of others, not for the sake of gravity, you see. It's an act of love. And here's the point, is when you begin to understand Jesus's fatherly disposition, then you will see his rules as notes of love for your protection and for your flourishing according to the way he designed you. When I went to my 10-year high school reunion 15 years ago, I uh, connected with an old um, acquaintance, and the way that I remember him was that uh, his house was the cool house, and his parents were the cool parents. 
Um, and by cool, what I mean is that his parents allowed him to do whatever he wants. Like there were zero rules. And even on occasion, his parents would buy alcohol for him and for these like silly high school parties. And as a rebellious teenager who came from an extremely strict home, I often wondered what it would be like to have cool parents who had no rules for me. So there I am, I'm talking to this old acquaintance, and I naturally ask about his parents. And as soon as I did, like a look of disgust comes over him. He says, I don't know, and I don't care. He was completely estranged from his parents. And as I was thinking about parents who do not care about what their children do, or they leave it up to the wisdom of their children, what the children ultimately conclude is that they have parents who do not care. But they don't care, you see. The only thing I remember from that time was him saying something to the effect of, I wish my parents cared about me as much as your parents cared about you. See, Jesus' rules for us, his law, his rule, it's not meant to feel like the walls are closing in on us. They're a hedge of love, fatherly love for his family. And this point naturally leads us to the third observation of this beautiful title, Everlasting Father. We've looked at the Messiah's authority, the Messiah's disposition, and now the Messiah's care. A few years ago, a historian whose name is Tom Holland wrote an important book. This is not the Spider-Man Tom Holland. Uh, some of you actually might have read his book. Um, it's called Dominion. The subtitle of this book is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And Holland accomplishes a handful of things in this book, but principally what he's trying to do is explain the effect of Christianity on the whole world. And what he does is he starts about 800 years before Jesus trying to um, explain like the origins of the practice of crucifixion, like its origins. Where did it come from and so forth? So he, in the book, he begins this conversation by describing the phenomena of public executions. Now listen, like to modern listeners, that just sounds barbaric and gross, like primitive at best. But he, what he does is he looks at all these competing kingdoms in the ancient Near East, and one of the things that a king had to do was to punish the enemies of the kingdom. Like if someone comes into the kingdom trying to hurt the king or the queen's people, then the king had to punish his enemies in a way that would preserve his own people long-term and dissuade future attempts to disrupt the peace. And so what the king would do is come up with ways to put his enemies to shame so that he could show the whole world that if you are an enemy of this king or of this kingdom, then what happened to this guy will happen to you. So that sounds all really gruesome, but what Holland begins to make a case for is that that might sound terrible to everyone else, but if you are a subject in this kingdom, you would have been encouraged 
to hear your king saying that I care about my subjects so much that I'll do something like this to anyone who tries to hurt you or to hurt this kingdom. And by doing this, the idea is, is that the king could preserve a future and a stability for his people. That's the idea of these public executions. Now, in Isaiah, the people in Israel felt the exact opposite. Their future was being compromised, not preserved, because of the actions of their king, this Ahaz figure. And so there is then this certain care that shows up in this title, Everlasting Father. In other words, it's not enough to name this Messiah King Father. Rather, it must be said of his kingship that it is everlasting, everlasting Father. It will persevere into the future. A future will be preserved. The word everlasting is meant to connote a real care for the king's subjects. One commentary was trying to help um, the, the student feel the, the sort of pastoral import of this name. And he translates everlasting father like this. He says, a benevolent king of the uncertain future. A benevolent king of the uncertain future. In other words, because this king is everlasting, his reign reaches into the future and can protect and preserve your place within the kingdom, although uncertainty and anxiety surround you. And do you know what this means for us? If Jesus is our king forever and ever, it means that he can guarantee that there are no ultimate bad outcomes. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Bad things can absolutely happen in this life, and they will. But what I'm saying is that this everlasting father is a king whose reign can absolutely ensure that in the face of your worst nightmare, holding the one that you love in your arms as they breathe their last breath, the worst thing that you can possibly think of, even that saddest, most tragic day will not be the final word nor the last chapter. This king with his kingdom is everlasting and therefore he gets the final word his kingdom is different, and he makes sure that the final outcome is only a good one. And you might ask, like, how do we know that? I mean, Ronnie, how can you be so certain? You know, at best, the kings that we have seen in history implement public execution against their enemies in order to preserve a future. I mean, is that the best that we can get? Like a shaky and grotesque certainty that comes by shaming our enemies? Well, that's not at all how Jesus, the everlasting king, father, treats his enemies, right? I mean, think about this with me for just a second. When does Jesus most resemble a king? 
You remember as you've studied the Gospels? It's at the very end of his life. But at the end, there's something strangely but beautifully reversed or inverted. Instead of a king who shames his enemies, he is a king who is shamed like an enemy and for his enemies. It was a very kingly thing to enter a town in victory, right? Riding on a war horse. But that's not what Jesus does. He enters riding on a donkey. Instead of being clothed in royal robes, Jesus is shamed and stripped naked. Instead of a crown of gold, he gets a crown of thorns. Instead of being surrounded by royal advisors and counselors, he's surrounded by enemies who spit on him. And instead of reposing on a throne, he's nailed to a cross. That's our king. That is the perfect son of God who would have a life that ends in unspeakable tragedy. And yet, the hope of the gospel and the reality of his reign is that tragedy would be overcome by resurrection. That tragedy would end in an ascension to his heavenly throne, which means that that is where all of our unspeakable tragedy is going as well. And if that is true of our king, if that is his destiny, that will be true for us because our destiny is tied to our covenant representative Our destiny is tied to the destiny of our king, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, born in a manger. And so all that is left is this question. Is he your king? Can you trust yourself entirely to him? I'll end with this story. It goes all the way back to the 14th century in Scotland. In the 14th century at that time, Scotland and England were at odds with one another. And the question for the Scots was, would Scotland be a part of England or would they be their own free people? And some of you know this story through the mythology of the movie of Braveheart. Um, In that movie... There is a real historical character who makes an appearance, and his name is Robert the Bruce. And um, by all external measures, Robert the Bruce lived a charmed life. I mean, he had money, he had resources, he had land, he had children. But he'd come to a place where he had to make a decision. Would he take the crown and become the king of Scotland? And by making this decision, both Robert the Bruce and his wife were clear that in doing so, by becoming the king and trying to take Scotland back and free its people, everything he has, everything he has is going to be at risk. All of his loved ones, his wife, his children, the life that they have all enjoyed, all of it would be totally at risk by deciding to take the crown and to enter into this conflict. 
And so there's this conversation that's captured between Robert the Bruce and his wife. And he asks her for advice. And this is what she says. She says, I know that you have no need for my counsel. I have seen very little of the world. However, a young lady of my standing has afforded a great deal of time to read, to form distinct opinions, and to draw her own conclusions about the nature of power. Now, at this point, you think that she's going to say something about how to execute a battle plan or how to wage war, how to do this. That's not what she does. She, she says, power is making decisions. Power is not allowing yourself to be buffeted on the tides of history. Instead, it is choosing a boat, climbing aboard, and hoisting the sail. Now, this is when you realize that she's not telling him what to do. She's telling him what she's about to do. She says, and so I choose you, whatever course you chart. Whatever the future holds, I trust you. If indeed the everlasting father, if he is a good king, the king of kings, with a fatherly disposition who shows care for your future, then the only right response is to say to him, I choose you, whatever course you chart, whatever the future holds, I trust you. And may it be so. Everlasting Father. Amen.